Amen. Thank you, worship team. And let's just show our appreciation to our children's ministry workers. Appreciate you. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, balcony. Look at all you up there. Good to see you. Yeah. And uh, also, good morning to our crew at Coldwater. Uh, Thankful to have you with us as well. Well, wherever you are, if you have a Bible handy, I'd love for you to pick it up and open it now, if you can, to Acts chapter 26, verse 12, Acts 26, verse 12, and that's on page 935 in our church Bibles. We are making our way, we're very near to the end now of our, uh, our walk through the Acts of the Apostles. We've been watching as the Apostle Paul, in this last phase of the book, makes his defense before senators, before governors, uh, before kings, and then he's on his way. We've got one encounter left. He's on his way uh, to the very heart of the Roman Empire in the capital city itself. Last week, uh, we took a look at Paul's defense of Christianity before King Agrippa. It was a lengthy speech. I think I mentioned it's the longest of the court speeches recorded in Acts. Uh, But thankfully, Paul himself tells us what the heart of the matter is. In verses 6 to 8, He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So the central issue, the apostle Paul says, is the hope of the Jews. I believe it. I believe every word that was spoken by the prophets, and I believe that all of those promises now have landed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm on trial. I believe there's a hope. I believe there is a future, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, for all the nations, for anyone and everyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's my gospel, and that's my testimony before you, O King Agrippa. That's what Paul says. Well, having looked at that wonderful speech uh, last week in terms of its overall message, I thought that this week we could zoom in on something very interesting, something very important that Paul says during the testimonial portion of his speech. In relating his call and commission uh, to the ministry, Paul talks about how he was told to go and open eyes with the gospel so that people could turn from darkness to light and they could turn from the power of Satan to God. And then when he begins to talk about how he went about engaging that commission, he talks about how he preached to both Jews and Gentiles, telling them to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. So what does that mean? That's the question we're going to try and answer today as we revisit this important section in Paul's speech before King Agrippa. So hear now the word of the Lord. Hopefully you have it open open again in front of you, Acts 26, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things 
in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's clear from our reading of this portion of Paul's speech before Agrippa that he understood his mission and calling fundamentally in terms of repentance. That's what he was seeking. That's what he was to pursue. And this was not just a skin-deep repentance that Paul was seeking. It was whole life repentance. He told people to turn around, to go to God, and to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So this is a deep work. It's a penetrating work, a saving work. So what does that look like? According to the Bible, false repentance is a deadly danger to people. In fact, I would argue that false repentance is the scariest concept in all the Bible. It's terrifying to think that that you could think that you've turned from your sins toward God and then find out that you're wrong. But the Bible speaks about that. The Bible speaks about people who have a sorrow for sin, but it actually turns out that it's more of a sorrow about consequences. It's a sorrow for being caught. It's a sorrow for having to face punishment, not an actual sorrow over sin itself. There are people who have some kind of love for God, but it turns out it's, it's not the, the love of gratitude. It's not the love of obedience. It's not the love of fealty. It's merely the love of admiration and enthusiasm. And such people are not real believers. You don't have to take my word for it. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who thinks they've really repented. Not everyone who thinks they've started following Jesus truly has. Old Testament and new, we are warned about this reality. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, which we read just this past week in our RMM Bible reading journey, God says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Ephraim is another name for Israel in the Bible. What shall I do with you? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You seen that? Your repentance is thin. Your sorrow is skin deep. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. There is no reality to it. The Bible talks about this time and time again. There is a worldly grief that leads to death. And there's a godly grief that leads to repentance unto life. And for the sake of our own souls, we need to know the difference. 
So what is real repentance? Our Puritan grandparents thought a lot about this. Thomas Watson wrote a book that's been influential in the church for centuries now. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance, in which he lays out six characteristics of real repentance. Now, the Puritans mostly used to focus on one half of this equation, and I think that's probably because they were uh, operating at a time of religious nominalism. And so they tended to focus almost exclusively on what it looks like to truly turn away from sin. That's very helpful. But actually, according to Paul, repentance is more than, than just that. It's, it's more than just turning away from sin. It's also turning toward God. It's moving out of darkness into light, away from the power of Satan, into the power of God. Paul talks about that. So there's clearly two parts to the process. There's a from and there's a to. So I'm borrowing and adapting these characteristics from Thomas Watson for our purposes this morning so that we can drill down on the nature of real repentance. First thing we need to say then is this. Real repentance involves a recognition of sin and an affirmation of God. That's where it all begins. There needs to be a moment when you realize who you've become and who you have betrayed. All true repentance starts there. Jesus was a phenomenal storyteller. He told a lot of stories trying to illustrate what it really looks like to repent. Maybe the most famous of those is the story about the young son who wanders away from God, but then who who does eventually come back. And of course, if you've read that story before, it's in Luke 15, you remember that there's a very important turning point. The young man is literally in in the depths of the ditch that he has wandered away into. He's in a far country. He's far away from God. And it actually says the, you know, he's lost all his money and the only job he can get is feeding pigs. And he's in the pig pen, which for a Jewish boy is probably not his favorite thing. He's in the pig pen and he's feeding them slop. You know what pigs eat, right? Pigs are the garbage disposals of the ancient world. He's feeding them slop and he realizes that he'd like to pull up alongside the trough and eat alongside of the pigs. And in that moment, he has a flash of insight. Luke tells it this way. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Do you see that? That's the moment when he realized in the pig pen who he had become and who he had betrayed. Somehow in the grace of God, in the movements of providence, he had been brought to that place where he understood, he saw himself as little more than an animal. And he realized in that moment that actually his father was a very good man. And his rebellion against him made no sense at all. That was the turning point in the story. And it is a perfect illustration of what has to happen to us at some point if we're ever going to truly repent. The beginning of all true repentance is that moment when you see the truth about yourself and the truth about God. Repentance is when you're brought to that place by God's grace where you cry out in anguish in your heart, I was wrong, and God, you were right. I was bad, and God, you were, and you are, and you always will be good. That's the first and essential characteristic of real repentance. And the second, of course, builds on that. Real repentance involves sorrow for sin and gratitude for mercy. As I said, Jesus tells the best stories about repentance. 
He sometimes will provide a, a contrast in the story uh, between false repentance and real repentance. And so we see that in Luke 18, for example, in the famous story of the two men. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, one man was focused on his saintliness. The other man was focused on his sinfulness. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Real repentance involves deep, heartfelt sorrow over sin and also overwhelming gratitude for the forgiveness and mercy that can be found in Christ. Do you remember the story about the woman in, uh, in Luke 7 who is profuse in her expressions of gratitude? Uh, Luke very politely refers to as a sinful woman. Leon Morris tells us that probably means a prostitute. But she'd obviously had a previous encounter with Jesus when she had received mercy and she could not stop expressing her gratitude for that grace. And Jesus points to her as a true example. He says to one of the Pharisees who was offended, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, real repentance is characterized by this strange commingling of sorrow and grateful joy. We are deeply sorry for the things we have done, but we are also deliriously thankful for the mercy we have received. Thirdly, true repentance is characterized by both confession of sin and profession of faith. The Bible says that real repentance involves speaking the truth about sin and also speaking the truth about God. And we see that, for example, in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is sometimes called the sinner's guide to repentance. It was written after David's sin with Bathsheba, which is perhaps the worst sin ever attributed to a believer in the Bible. And yet, by the grace of God, David repents. Now, of course, there are still consequences in that story, as you well know. There's a civil war that results. David actually has three sons die as a result of that sin. But thanks be to God, David did truly repent and he did receive mercy from the Lord and he wrote Psalm 51 in the aftermath of that as a sort of prayer guide for those seeking true repentance. And in it, we see him speaking the truth about his sin. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before, before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, I'm not gonna disagree with a single thing your word says about who I am and what I've done. 
I accept all the judgments of God. I accept all the words of Scripture. David actually uses almost all the words in the Hebrew language for sin in Psalm 51. No sugarcoating whatsoever. David says, I I am. I, I am evil. I am a line crosser. I am a law breaker. He tells the truth about his sin. But then he also tells the truth about God. In verses 13 to 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That's part of the process too. As Matthew Henry said famously on this passage, penitence should be preachers. Real repentance involves speaking the truth about your sin and speaking the truth about your God. If your heart is really changed, if the wells of your heart have really changed, then the water bubbling out of those wells and coming out of your mouth ought to be flowing in these directions. And then fourthly, real repentance involves shame for sin and desire for deliverance. Not all shame is bad, according to the Bible. I know, some, we, you know we've been raised in a culture which basically says you should never feel shame. You should never allow anyone to make you feel shame. Shame is their problem, not your problem. Well, not so fast. Shame can be a gift from God. Peter Kroll, in his article, Three Kinds of Shame, talks about the good kind, saying, in moments of clarity, we're horrified by our ability to be horrible. You ever had a moment like that? Every journey of real repentance has at least one moment like that. When you see who you are and you come face to face with what you are capable of and you are pierced through the heart with an authentic sense of shame. That's a good thing. Every journey out of sexual addiction starts with a moment like that. When you see what you are looking at and you see what you are doing while you are looking at that and you are horrified at the animal you have become. Or maybe it's when you hear how you're talking to your spouse. Or maybe when you hear how you're talking to your kids. Whatever it is, there has to be a moment when God opens your eyes so that you can see your sin the way he sees it. That's a gift, brothers and sisters. That's grace. It's a wake-up call. It's a bucket of cold water in your face. That is God waking you up to the reality of the peril that you are facing. We all need that. There is a stage in the journey of true repentance that is fueled by a God-given sense of shame a desire to be something better than you are, a desire to be lifted up out of the muck into which you have sunk. You catch a sense of that godly desire in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fifthly, real repentance involves a hatred for sin and a delight in holiness. At some point in the repentance process, shame hardens into hatred, and rightly so. We learn to hate that which we once loved. 
We hate the harm that sin does to other people. We hate the deceitfulness with which it entraps the vulnerable. We hate how it diminishes us as human beings, and we hate how it dishonors God, our God and creator. Make no mistake, my friends. Hatred is something you need to grow in as a Christian. Apostle Paul says that in Romans 12. He tells his people to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Abhor means to hate. You are supposed to have an instinctively negative reaction towards sin. You are supposed to move back in revulsion, in fear. You're supposed to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And that's harder to do, I would argue, in our day and age than it's ever been before. If I could speak for just a moment as a pastor and as a parent, I'll be honest with you, this one really concerns me because Hollywood is really good at interrupting this process. Hollywood is really good at normalizing that which is unnatural and even hateful to God. And that interferes with the proper functioning of our conscience. Our conscience is like an early warning system. It's supposed to give you a little, a little prick or a little shock when you get close to something that is dangerous. Your conscience is not perfect, though, and neither is it static. It can be dulled or it can be sharpened, depending on what it is exposed to, and that's the issue in our day. Because I'm sure you've all noticed that in the last 10 to 15 years, there has been a concerted effort by the entertainment industry to mainstream portrayals of sexual behavior that are supposed to trigger your God-given conscience. I'm sure you've noticed that. Certainly as parents, we notice that. It's really hard now to find a show that you can watch as a family. And not to glorify the 80s, right? Which I do all the time and I should not. <laughs> so good. Remember Night Rider? Anyway. <laughs> now that song is going to be going through your head for the rest of the service if you're 50 years old. But, it, but it, is, it is amazing. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to watch shows as a family. You'd sit down, you'd watch, you'd watch stuff, and they'd make stuff that, you know, had cars with funny lights in it to keep Dad occupied, and then, you know, plot lines that kept Mom occupied, but then interesting things for the kids, right? Like, and they were careful, not perfect, but, but careful about how sexuality was portrayed in the, in the shows that were targeted at the family. Good luck finding a show like that today. It's very hard to do. Good luck finding a movie because the industry, the entertainment industry, is under a tremendous amount of pressure to ensure what they refer to as sexual diversity in all their programs. So if you're watching something made in the last decade, then you're pretty much guaranteed to encounter some kind of deviant sexual expression. And every time that happens, it's like a rock scraping over the pointy part in your conscience gets duller and duller and duller over time. So as parents, we have to work to counteract that process. This means being a little more vigilant about what the kids are watching, and it also means providing some positive teaching about human sexuality to resharpen that which has been dulled. Because that conscience, that's a gift from God. It's supposed to prick you and push you back from that which is hateful to God. And if you lose it, or if it becomes dulled to the point where it no longer functions in any kind of legitimate way, then you find yourself drifting, not knowing which is the way back to God. 
We want to get to the place where all the helps and all the indicators are pushing ourselves and our kids in the same direction. Ideally, we want to get to the place where we're doing the right things, not because we have to, but because we want to, right? So we actually do have to transform our affections. The goal, each time our conscience pricks us, the goal, it's the same with your kids. It's the same with your dogs, right? I mean, what do you do with a dog? You, you try, each time they do a right behavior or they demonstrate a right attitude or a right, uh, a right action, you give them a treat. There's a sense in which your conscience is supposed to function in that very primitive way toward the goal of transforming your affections, transforming your instincts. The goal, a mark of maturity, the goal of maturity is when you're doing the right thing, not under compulsion, but out of instinct and natural desire. The, the goal here is for discipline to become delight. That's a wonderful place. When your heart cry is a little less, oh God, help me do what I should, and a little more, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a good place, and you'll pass through that place in your journey of real repentance. And then lastly, at least in terms of Watson's list, real repentance involves abandoning sin and pursuing God. The Bible doesn't say that you will ever achieve sinless perfection in this life. In fact, the Bible says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we're always going to be battling with sin. We're always going to be waging war on remaining sin. But the expectation is that as we grow in Christ, we will increasingly leave sin behind and move forward into greater and greater works of righteousness. Now, of course, there have always been Christian teachers and leaders who have attempted to deny this. There have always been preachers of cheap grace who say basically, you know, do whatever you want, right? And then say a quick prayer and all will be forgiven. That is a very popular version of Christianity. But it is not the real thing. The Apostle Paul pushed back on that nonsense hard. He said, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the movement of all truly saved people. To be a Christian is to have your eyes open to the sinfulness of sin and the beauty and glory of God. To be a Christian is to be moving out of darkness into marvelous light. If you're not seeing that and if you're not doing that, then you are, by definition, not saved. That's what saved is. It means to be healed by God so that you can see, and it means to be helped by God so you can grow. Now, that's the end of our list from Thomas Watson, but I want to add one more. Don't worry if you don't have it on your paper. I added it this morning. Uh, That's the, the drawback of technology. Scott's a superstar back there, so he was able to put it on, so it'll show up here. But as I was, so truthfully, I used that list because, as I said, it's from Thomas Watson, and the church has been using that list as a checkpoint 
for real repentance for hundreds of years. So it's well known. I would imagine there are many people in here who have used that list before. But it occurs to me that it is not complete. I agree with it 100%. I just preached it wholeheartedly, love it. But as I read the scriptures, it seems that there's one thing missing. And so I want to add that in. Seventh characteristic of real repentance is this. Embracing consequences and resting in God. We were talking about David's sin with Bathsheba a few minutes ago, as I mentioned there were serious consequences. There was a civil war that resulted from David's sin, and as David was fleeing the city in advance of his son's approaching army, there was a man named Shimei who walked alongside of David's caravan and who threw rocks at the king. He was pelting David with stones and cursing him continually. One of David's soldiers, Abishai, asked for permission to kill Shimei, But David wouldn't let him, saying, If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Do you see that? David knew that all of this had been caused by his sin. Therefore, he embraced absolutely every consequence that God ordained. That's true repentance. Real repentance involves embracing consequences as part of how God will heal your soul. David wanted to take his medicine. He was eager to be healed. And so if this is the medicine God has ordained, then give me a double portion. That was his attitude. And that is the attitude of all truly repentant people. Which leads us to a final and very necessary question, which we must deal with before we close. What if I am guilty of false repentance? As I mentioned, false repentance is the scariest concept in the Bible because there is no person so lost as the person who thinks they are saved. False repentance tricks us and tricks others into thinking that we're doing fine. There's no need for us to be in anguish over our sin. There's no need for us to be in some kind of process, right? We said the prayer. We prayed the, the, the tears. We walked the sawdust trail. We're fine. You worry about yourself. Every pastor and every parent needs to be very aware of the danger that people who say such things are in. The Apostle Paul certainly was. He said to his people, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. By the way, that phrase, I, I find when, when people see that, that sentence, they're a little bit offended by it, evangelicals anyway. Because we've all been told that if we ever said the prayer, or if we ever had a moment where we felt warmly towards Jesus, or if we ever made a decision as if the life of faith consisted of one decision, But if we ever had that kind of moment, then no one is allowed to question our our faith because we sincerely hold it. Well, I got news for you. Your sincerity is not binding upon the God of the universe. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 is a, a way of saying, I'm a sincere follower. And Jesus says, actually, no, you're not. I never knew you. Your sincerity, what you believe in your heart, is not binding on the God of the universe. 
And so Paul says to his people, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He said, do you not realize that God is in you? Are you having a moment of doubt where you're looking in your heart and saying, well, maybe Jesus isn't in me? There ought to be evidence if Jesus is in you. You ought to be moving away from sin, moving towards God, leaving behind the power of Satan, moving towards the beauty of God. So look for those things, Paul says. There's no chance that you could have Jesus in you and not spot that movement in your life. Or perhaps you're guilty of worldly grief. That's another option, Paul says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you've failed the test today in in terms of these markers of true repentance, then I would plead with you, as your pastor and as your friend, get down on your knees before this day is over and pray for a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In our statement of faith here at Cornerstone, we declare that we believe that repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of their sin. By the way, doesn't that language sound like David's prayer? does, by faith in Christ, humble themselves for it with godly sorrow. Detestation, by the way, that's another word for hate. By the way, did you know your statement of faith includes a statement that you're committed to hating certain things? Detestation of it. Self-abhorrency, that actually means hating the sin in yourself. Praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit, it's all of grace, to walk before God so as to please him in all things. I hope if you're a member, that's not the first time you've been floored by that statement because you've got to sign that to become a member here. I want to draw your attention to the first three words, though. We believe that repentance is an evangelical grace. Meaning, it is a grace associated with our salvation. It is something you have to receive from God in order to build profitably upon. Have you received it? Because if if you have not, then all your labors will be in vain. So let me end by leading in a prayer for the grace of true repentance. And if you need to, then pray along with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. O God, grant unto us by your grace the building blocks of true repentance. Give us open eyes to see our sin, and your goodness. Give us right affections that we would love what we should love and hate what we should hate. Give us a tongue that speaks the truth about sin.
and that delights to profess faith in God through Christ. Give us a refined conscience that can prick and point us in the way of true righteousness. Give us a resolve to face consequences. Give us a trusting heart to embrace process. Give us an authentic and genuine love for you. Give us a desire to see you, knowing that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Grant us these things. Grant us the grace to pursue them with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit that we might walk before you and please you in all things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, would you stand and let's sing in response to that as we prepare to come to the table. Jesus paid it all, all to hear my own left a crimson stain he was in Christ alone my hope is found he is my my strength my soul this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest trial of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comfort, my all in all, here in the heart of Christ, my
Sin had left a crimson stain. He At this time, we'll dismiss our online viewers as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table together.